Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, that's in the New Testament, the second half. Galatians chapter 4. Halloween week. Please pray for us at TCC. We'll be hosting an outreach Halloween event tonight, particularly uh, focused on reaching some international students who have never heard anything about American holidays. And we will use this opportunity to share Jesus, and specifically we'll share how Jesus has dominated and defeated all things spooky and demonic and rules over Satan I'm looking forward to it. That'll be tonight. If you think about it, pray for us in that. Have a fun Halloween memory for my house. wasn't too long ago. Uh, I don't know what, how you guys do it, but I send my kids out, and we do the trick-or-treating thing. It's good to meet people in our neighborhood. We have fun with it. Uh, not too long ago, when my uh, son, one of them, was about four years old, I dressed up all the kids. We went out trick-or-treating around the neighborhood, and Julie stayed home and passed out candy, by the way, full-size candy bars at the Williams house. She does it right. So we're going out. I take, I bring the kids back in, and they all have a big hall, and she's still manning the door where kids are coming, and I have this idea to switch costumes on my four-year-old. So I switch him, you know, from something to Batman, and he's got the full gear, his, his face is covered, and then I sneak him out the back door and I hook him onto a group of fifth grade girls that's going around, and I tell them to come to my house. So they show up at my house. This is my son trick-or-treating at my own house, and Julie opens the door, and she sees him, and she says, oh, what a cute little boy. He doesn't recognize him. So that was a big <laughs> big win. As But as he was leaving, they finally caught on when she saw the backside view. She's like, hey, that's my boy. What are you doing? So that was fun. Fun for us. Hope you have a fun Halloween. By the way, Halloween joke. You know why skeletons don't go trick-or-treating. They got nobody to go with. <laughs> nobody. <laughs> Pastor Hunter's the same way. <clears throat> nobody to go with. <laughs> All right. Galatians 4. We're continuing in our study, free at last, going through the whole book of Galatians. We're right up to verse 8 today. Thus far, Paul has been making a very clear argument for you. I don't want to miss his main argument up to this point. Right standing before God comes through faith in Christ alone. It doesn't come from being under the law in the Jewish system it comes from being in Christ. Okay, and it's at this point, especially when we're studying Galatians together as a church, in light of what's going on in our culture, we need to be really explicit, and particularly when we read a book like Galatians, because Paul is saying, there's no hope for you if you're trusting in the Jewish religious system to get you righteous before God. That can only come from Jesus Christ. But he is not saying that he is against ethnic Jews. Okay? Paul is an ethnic 
Jew. Jesus is an ethnic Jew. We love Jewish people. It's really important for us to say this week, in light of the tragedy in Pittsburgh, we mourn with the families there that are grieving. We come alongside them and say, this is not right, it's unjust, it's injustice. And we have to be clear when we study a book like Galatians because he talks about the Jewish religious system. We love Jewish people. Before we go to the text, would you join me in prayer for our worship time here? Let's pray. God, we worship here to pursue life in Christ. And we do pray for the families impacted by the tragedy this week. That shooting is horrific, terrible. We mourn it. And yet we see hope. Not that death will win the day, but that Christ in the end has triumphed and will triumph over all of Satan's plan. All of his minions will one day be forever chained and this mess will stop. So we worship you in Christ as the only one powerful enough to do such things, to end the madness. And in our worship of you today, we call out, say, Jesus, come and show us yourself and your word today. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're in chapter 4, verse 8. What I'm going to do is just Read through this with you. That's a nice sized chunk all the way to the end of the chapter. And just make some comments as we go. And then we'll see a couple of ways that we can respond together. Okay? I'll read it and then let you know what's going on. Because it can be hard to understand as Paul writes. So, verse 8. He begins. Formerly, he says, when you did not know God talking to the church at Galatia, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Okay, he's saying to these ancient Christians, before you knew Christ, you were enslaved such that you could not see the glory of Christ. You were enslaved to things that were not gods. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the pagan rituals. They would actually have things they would worship that they thought were gods, but they weren't. They were sham gods. They were imposters. And Paul, in places like 1 Corinthians 10, would actually link this pagan idol worship to the demonic. Okay, Paul sees Satan lurking behind this type of worship. And that aligns really well with what we know about the reality of the Bible. Right? We, we hear in Genesis that Satan is always out to get God's people. He's out for self-glorification. He doesn't want us to glorify God. And only in Christ will he be defeated. So Paul sees that here from the beginning of time. Satan himself wants to own the glory of God. But not knowing God in Christ is actually slavery to Satan. Verse 9, he continues. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be 
once more. I don't want you to miss a sweet, sweet pronouncement of our situation with God as His people. See how Paul says it there? It's not that you know God when you're in Christ. It's that you are known by God. Man, that is sweet. All your mess, all your destructive habits, all your flaws, Paul emphasizes, God knows you intimately. Okay, He's taking the initiative to get to know you. Old Testament language of God coming to His people, electing His people, choosing to know you in spite of yourself and wanting to be near you and wanting to shape you. Paul says, you are known by God. You're known by Christ Himself. Where your old master is weak and worthless, your new Lord Jesus is strong and powerful and worthy of all praise. Think about perhaps you have a friend. If you're lucky enough, you have a couple of good friends you've known for more than 10 years. And imagine just sitting in a coffee house with them, being vulnerable and pouring out your heart, sharing your deepest problems. And think, would you rather do that or would you rather... Go online to a public subreddit thread and post your deepest problems to a public moderator. You would rather sit with someone who knows you intimately. Paul is saying, why would you turn from intimacy back to something worthless? That's his argument. He says, when you're leaving the doctrine of justification, being righteous through Christ alone, through faith alone, like you're turning your back on an intimate God who knows you well. Don't do it. This counsel here for us today. Verse 10. What was one way they were doing this in verse 10? Well, Paul says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you guys in vain. What does he mean observing days and seasons? He's not talking about our type of holiday. He's not talking about Halloween here. He's talking about the Jewish ritual, the festival calendar. Apparently, the church there had begun adopting some of these days and rituals and feasts in order to earn merit before God. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, like Romans 14, Paul is going to say, these days and feasts and festivals in and of themselves are morally neutral. Okay, He's not necessarily hard on the Passover feast. But he is hard on anyone who says you can earn merit, justification before God by being circumcised or keeping this feast. Hopefully you can see the difference. He says you're using this to play God yourself. To save yourself. Makes him think has everything I've done preaching the clear gospel to you been in vain? You're turning away from it. Maybe Paul had in mind the story of Jesus that we find in John 7. The story is Jesus actually at one of these Jewish feasts. He's having a good time. It's the Feast of Booths. And it's towards the end of the feast. And Jesus will be laying down there at a table. You can picture him in your mind. Everybody has come to the feast to eat, to drink, to be happy. And at the end of it, Jesus stands up. And what does he say? If anybody thirsts, come to me. You'll thirst no more. I can give you living water. The Spirit of God 
all of the feasts and all of the systems were to advertise Jesus. And the people were missing him. Paul says that is very, very dangerous. In World Series terms, this was a swing and a miss. They were trying to knock the ball out of the park by observing these festivals to get righteous before God. They were striking out. Now, in verse 12, note the change in tone. Paul is going to now use a more personal appeal. Okay, He's been theological, and in a moment he's going to use the Old Testament. He's pulling out all the stops to convince these people Jesus is all you need. Now he gets very personal because he has a relationship with them. Listen to how he says in verse 12. Brothers, brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Become as I am, which is someone not restricted living under the Old Testament law. Okay, Become like me, because I came, became like you at one time. Paul came to the Galatian church, a lot of Gentiles, and he contextualized the gospel. He put the gospel in their terms. You did me no wrong. He first arrived as a church planter with Barnabas. He preached the clear gospel, and nobody opposed him then. But now, as time has gone on, people are looking at his gospel, and they're saying, I don't know about that, Paul. It's really simple. I think we need to add something to Jesus. Paul says, no, no, no. Your turn away from the gospel is offensive to me. Look in verse 13. He starts talking about his personal history with them. He says, you know, it was because in the first place, because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Here Paul is reflecting back to when he was there with the people. Apparently the reason he stopped and stayed so long with this church in the first place is during his missionary travels he had acquired a physical dysfunction, a physical ailment. We don't really know what that is. There are a couple of uh, guesses. Some have said he could have acquired or he could be afflicted with epilepsy. Uh, the word there in verse 14 for scorn can also mean in the original language to spit. And in that culture, if someone had epilepsy, they believed you could spit on them to help cure them. Right? And so Paul is writing, you didn't scorn me, you didn't spit on me. So some people take that and think, he had epilepsy and it was troublesome for people to, to watch him go into a seizure. More likely, though, it's probably his ailment, his affliction was an eye problem, an eye problem, maybe an eye disease. Uh, I, I think that because uh, he mentions in verse 15, he says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. You guys loved me so much. You would have gouged your own eyes. Later in chapter 6, he makes a point of saying, I'm writing to you in really big letters. So a lot of people think he had problems with his eye. That's not really his point. His point was, you received my gospel even though I was hurting. I wasn't a strong person in front of you. It was ugly for you to listen to me because of my affliction. And now you're rejecting me. What in the world happened? Why are you viewing me with such suspicion now? I'm the same guy and I'm telling you the truth. Go back to Jesus. 
He is sufficient for all your needs. Verse 16. Have I become your enemy just by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. Talking about the false teachers, right? The people telling them you need Jesus plus something else to appease the wrath of God. They make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It can be very flattering if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I know an elite way to get to God, a special way to earn intimacy. Just knowing Jesus isn't enough. Okay? I can make you one of the elite people who really get it. All you have to do is do circumcision. Paul says they're actually shutting you out from the truth in order to build themselves up. Don't fall for it. The false teachers were promising a type of freedom to the people there. You know, you just believe that Jesus is the only thing you need to stand righteous before God. That's so limiting. Come find your fullest expression by living under the Old Testament religious system. Right? That's the promise. And that's the way it always works, right? As somebody said, consider the fish. When you think about freedom, a fish survives because they get their air from water. Sorry, they get their oxygen from water and not air, right? But if the fish is to pursue freedom on land, to go exploring, they'll soon stop moving and they'll die, right? True freedom is finding the right restriction. And Paul is saying, righteousness before God is restricted to only the work of Jesus on the cross. Only his atonement can make you righteous. Once you get that, you are free to love. You are free to live. You are free from the burden of trying to earn your own salvation. Verse 18. Paul keeps going. Hopefully you will too. Verse 18. It's always so good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you. So Paul's saying there are times when I will come around you and say, great job. For the glory of God, you are pursuing and you are working well. But the false teachers are coming around saying, great job. Now you've added circumcision the gospel. Paul's saying they're doing it for the wrong purpose. I do it. Glory of God. 19 he shows how he loves them. My, my little children you can hear a pastor's heart here. My, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Oh it hurts me to have to tell you this. I'm hurting until Christ is formed in you. Verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you guys. You can hear a father's voice there, right? Talking to his children. I don't, I don't want to have to say this to you, and I don't want to be the heavy here, but you're headed down a path of destruction. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Now for this last little portion, verses 21 through 30, Paul is going to turn back to the Old Testament. He's going to give an illustration. 
Okay, verse 21. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? This is a tricky point, Paul, because he uses the same word with two different meanings here. He uses the word law. First, when he says, you who desire to be under the law, he's talking about the, the stipulations given to Moses on the mountains. You who wish to be living under the Mosaic covenant, don't you even read the law? He uses the law in a different sense meaning the first five books of the Old Testament. They were called the law. Tricky. You who want to live under Moses, didn't you even read the first five books of the Old Testament? 22. For there you would have seen that it's written that Abraham had two sons. He doesn't mention them here, but he's talking about Isaac and Ishmael. One he had by a slave woman, Hagar. The other by a free woman, Sarah, again, he doesn't mention those names, but that's who he's talking about. 23, but the son of the slave, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. What does it mean to be born according to the flesh? Well, Hagar and Abraham and Sarah came up with a workaround. You see, God had promised to deliver Abraham and Sarah by giving them Isaac, except it took time, right? About 13 years. During that 13 years, somewhere along the line, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar said, you know what? I don't trust that God can actually deliver us. We've got to work around it ourselves. We've got to do something to pull this off ourselves. That's why Paul is bringing this up. He's an example of everyone who says, I've got to prove myself to God. I've got to merit my salvation. That's the only way. It's not going to happen if I just trust in God to deliver me alone. The Bible is full of people taking matters into their own hands. Remember David. He got Bathsheba pregnant. And then he didn't think God could deliver him from that. Right? So I got an idea. I'll save myself. I'll have her husband murdered. My problem will be solved. Remember a rich young ruler came to Jesus? Remember that guy came and said, man, how can I get into heaven? How can I receive eternal life? Jesus said, well, have you read the Old Testament? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've kept it all. Now what else do I need to do to impress God? Jesus said, well, it's kind of a hard thing. You want him to give all your stuff away? He was aiming at his greed. The guy walks away, right? He wanted to save himself, and Jesus was saying, that ain't going to happen. you got to let God change your heart. It's on God's initiative. And we know in the bigger story of the Bible, we read all the way to the end of Revelation, it is God alone in Jesus Christ coming back on a white horse who will finally settle the score. It won't be due to our own works as Believers, Paul is contrasting salvation between our efforts and God's work through Jesus Christ. You can see it as we read on. Look at verse 24. Paul says, now this can be interpreted, this whole Hagar-Sarah story, this can all be interpreted in the book of Genesis allegorically. He means, I'm going to use it as an illustration. Here. Okay? 
Now, at this point, I want to put up a chart, or try to, uh, that I got from a guy named Tim George that can be helpful here. I don't know if you can see it, but hopefully you can see that. Um, because it kind of sets up what Paul is saying. He's saying, some people are from the line of Hagar, some are from the line of Sarah, verse 24. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So these Judaizers would look at this chart, and they wouldn't like it at all. They would be furious because they are present Jerusalem, right? And they are on the left-hand side under Hagar. Everybody knows Sarah's people. Those are the people of the promise. But Paul is saying, you know, actually, when you trust in circumcision and Jesus for your righteousness before God, you're placing yourself in the wrong column here. You're aligning with the old covenant people who try to save themselves according to the flesh. I want you to be on the right hand side. People who trust in the promise of God. Isaac, the son of freedom. He was the result of God's promise. Right? The new covenant initiated with Jesus is a covenant bought by his blood and mediated by his good shepherdship. The heavenly coming Jerusalem is a much better city than aligning yourself with the current ritualistic practices of the Jewish people. Heavenly Jerusalem, it's coming. Jesus says he's going to bring in the book of Revelation a new city coming, a new rule of God's people, and it'll be glorious. And Paul says, that's where you want to find yourself. Don't be turning back. True believers don't need the law of Jerusalem for salvation. They're citizens of a better coming city. Now look, verse 27. As Paul's wrapping up, he throws in, on top of his Old Testament illustration, a separate Old Testament quote. So we've got to be smart here, or you'll drown in it. Verse 27, he adds a quote that's very fitting, but it's not from Genesis, it's from Isaiah 54.1. Look what it says, and then I'll tell you where he's coming from here. Verse 27, for it is written in Isaiah, Rejoice, O barren one who does not hear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has husbands. What's going on here? Well, Isaiah is picturing... Jerusalem during the exile, during the harsh time of Jerusalem's history, as a woman with no children. A widowed woman, her husband's been killed off. She has no one to protect her. She has no hope of her children one day protecting her. She is in dire strait. Who dare come to this woman and say, it's going to be okay, hope. You're going to have descendants where the voice speaking in the prophecy is God. God comes to Jerusalem and says, your offspring are going to be abundant. Where you think there's desolation, there will be fruitfulness. Where you think there is loneliness, there will be hope. 
think there's poverty, there will be much wealth. And God's deliverance and his faithfulness to his covenant promises, ultimately as seen in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He's bringing this up because it's a great picture of God's promise, rescue. God says, I will rescue the hurting. And in Jesus Christ, he pulls it off. Why would we ever want to add anything to the finished work of Jesus? If we do, we're doubting God's deliverance, his power, his ability. And Paul wraps up verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. This is so nice because he tells them their true identity, right? If you're ever parenting a child, you don't want to leave them after they've misbehaved and say, you're nothing but a misbehaver. You loser. You never parent like that. You want to say, I have hope for you. Here's who you really are. You're in the image of God. You're my child. I love you. Let's move forward. Paul's saying the same thing. You're a children of promise, church. Don't turn away from this glorious message. Isaac, to be crystal clear, Isaac was not birthed through human effort. Your salvation will not be birthed through human effort. 29, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Now he's going back to the analogy. So also it is now. In other words, this false teaching that you're receiving is a form of spiritual persecution. Verse 30, what does scripture say about that? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman, quoting Genesis 21.10 here. As one writer puts it, to enshrine the basic gospel truth that legal bondage and spiritual freedom cannot coexist. Legal bondage and spiritual freedom cannot coexist these teachers must be rooted out of the church. This false hope must be rooted out of your heart. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, says Paul. You're not on the left-hand side of the column. You're children of the free woman, Sarah. Given a promise, don't forsake that promise of Christ's holy deliverance of you. That's a summary statement here. Those who know that they are justified by Christ alone, through faith alone, are free. Those who don't get that are in bondage. They're enslaved. Now that we've made some sort of sense of this, talk about how we could respond, okay? First, here's one response. This might be you. I want you to know that knowing that salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone can free you up to grow in Jesus. Listen how one pastor puts it. I have a quote here. I'll try to put it up from a pastor named Scott Smith. He says, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it on our behalf. What we could never do, he has done for you. What we could never be, he has become for you. 
The judgment you unquestionably deserved, he completely exhausted on the cross. The perfect righteousness the law requires is now freely and fully yours in Jesus. His last words from the cross, it is finished, have become your first words of freedom. It's not your obedience, but Christ in which you trust. Okay, it's not your obedience, but Christ in which you trust. It's not your righteousness, but it's his in which you now trust, in which you now boast, in which you now rest. By the same grace Christ saved you, his spirit is now changing you. As this gospel continues to make you sane, you're trusting it will make you more and more whole. Okay? More and more like your Lord Jesus as spouses, parents, children, workers, and friends, and neighbors. To be clear, trusting that you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, it frees you from a type of spiritual performance anxiety. Okay? In other words, if you can trust Christ to convert you in your conversion experience, you can trust Him to make you more and more like Himself. Your maturity is not a do-it-yourself project. Right? Christ is going to do it by your Spirit. Think about if it was. Think about if it was up to us to obey, 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 obey by our own will and thereby grow. I don't know about you, but it'd be messy in my life. Here's a scene from my life this week. Maybe you can relate to it. So this week, right before community group was supposed to happen, leading this meeting at my house, I get sick. You know, it's it's bad timing, but sickness is going around. Everybody's getting it. So I get it, and I feel really bad. And uh, the next day, I am to research and prepare the sermon. So I'm in my pajamas, in my bed, working, and my work computer, it's dying. It crashes. Okay, So I get my home computer, switch over, which is a bit annoying if you have that work computer dynamic, but you know how it is in technology. So you go with it, get the backup, the backup fails. All right, so I'm like, oh, man, this is, this is going to be rough. I get this phone call, and I must have been on the meds and half asleep or something, but I get this phone call, and I pick up, it goes to the machine, I pick up, I listen to the answer machine, and it says, the police will be at your house within 24 hours because of your tax evasion. <laughs> now, thankfully, I figured out it was a scam, right? These people want you to call them, and they'll get your money. But half sick me wasn't clicking on full cylinders, and I'm like, oh, no, what's going on? Then my wife calls. Again, I'm in my PJs trying to work on a sermon. She calls and says, you know, you got to get to the school because one of your children has had an accident. And it's the messy kind of accident, right? So you got to go and clean up. So I go, and I arrive, and I find out that this messy type of accident is now caked on. Now, <laughs> leading up to all of this, our family devotion had been from Revelation 2, where God calls everybody to patient endurance. And I left that devotion, <laughs> I left that devotion resolved to be a patient man who endured, but in the moment, I reached deep down, and the well was dry. I could not 
count on my own supply. But here's the good news. God showed up. I had uncanny, untravis-like patience with that whole process that was supernatural. It wasn't natural to me. It was Christ making me something I am not naturally. Just like he does in conversion. Okay, so I want to give you hope. If, if you're the type who, who, who has a devotion and comes and says, all right, I'm going to do it. Bam, 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 bam. I think you should try. <laughs> I really do. And I try. And that's good. But let's not, that, let's not let that be your eternal, ordinary hope. Okay? As you're striving, realize what's going on here. It is Christ who is delivering. You can't muster up your own patient endurance. Specifically, it could be with you. Mine was trying to be patiently enduring that day. It could be with you. Uh, I want to read my Bible so many times. I want to pray for others all the time. I want to do social justice. Just know that Christ frees you from the burden of wearing these things as merit badges. Okay? To impress God. God is more impressed with Christ's work than He is with your work. And that's a freeing thought. That frees you up to enjoy God in that so that your Bible reading actually transforms into a way to enjoy God. Your patient endurance actually is morphed into something where you can treasure Christ. Your social justice is no longer something you're doing to impress God. You're doing it because you're impressed by God. It's a lot of freedom here. I hope you can feel it. Another way to respond. Some of you are wired differently, right? It's hard for you to identify or those who might put their own hope in their prayer life. Because to be honest, you hadn't had a prayer life for the last month. All right, it's been hard. Caring for the poor is never your marriage badge because you haven't been able to do it since the baby was born, since you got the new job. A songwriter named Stephanie Davis, and she she wrote a song where she's contemplating our deepest struggles through the eyes of a rancher who's bringing the cattle back home from the field and the rancher watches a cattle get pulled down by a pack of wolves. So she's, she's seeing herself in that. It's like, oh God, there's always people who are struggling. She says, Lord, please shine a light of hope on those of us who fall behind. When we stumble in the snow, could you help us Why there's still... Time. Galatians 4 is for all of you who feel like the one the wolves pulled down. Okay? If you leave the house and you feel like you're wearing a thick body paint coat of shame, Galatians 4 is for you. If you ever think, man, if everyone knew who I really am, they wouldn't want to come near me at all. Galatians 4 is for you. If you struggle with thinking, man, surely God's going to punish me for all the times I failed him this week and maybe this circumstance I'm living in, that's the punishment. You know, Galatians 4 is for you. The fact that you were converted from the realm of the weak and worthless by Christ through faith alone, 
ensures that your standing now is not based on what you're doing. It's based on what he did, what he does, what he will do. It's based on Christ's torment. He sees your scars, struggles. He sees your sin. He doesn't turn away. After all, let's be honest. It's not like Christ bought you off of Amazon. You're more like a Facebook marketplace, okay? He didn't buy you new and shiny, all right? You weren't brand new and perfect. You came with some bruises. You came with some sin. You came with the stench of Satan. And yet, he bought you, right? I remember in seminary, I think I told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. I remember talking to a couple, and a couple was had a baby who struggled regularly with a sickness that required the baby to vomit, to spit up a lot. So they just grew up parenting the child that spit up when he was young. And one day they told me they were at a party, dinner party, just the parents around. They were talking. They were all dressed up nicely, and the host parents were talking to them in a group of other parents and their two-year-old came up. The host family's two-year-old. So the people that were telling the story knew something was wrong when the little girl came up and she said, Mommy, I think I'm going to be sick. And she gave that body language that every parent knows when you know something's coming. <laughs> and it cleared the room, right? Everybody's like, Whoa, look out! Everybody except two people. My friends. Everybody went like this, but my friends went like this. All right? They're so used to their own child. When they saw the mess, they stepped into it. Touch it. That's the picture of what Jesus does in initiating salvation with you and carrying out your salvation now. He sees you. He knows you. He wants to be near you. Give Charles Spurgeon the last word here. Here's a quote. If you're here today and you feel trampled by the weight of your sin, here's a hopeful word. If today, says Spurgeon, if today you feel that your own sin is hateful to you, believe in him, that's Jesus, who has said, it is finished. Let me link your hand in mine. Let us come together, both of us, and say, here are two poor, naked souls, good Lord. We cannot clothe ourselves. And he will give us a robe. For it is finished. Now hear this. Now you might object, but must we not add tears to it? You hear that? <laughs> Surely that's not enough. Surely I have to add my own tears to this. In response, Christ says, no. No, it is finished. There is enough. Child of God, will you have Christ's finished righteousness this morning? And will you rejoice in it more than you ever have before? That's the Galatians 4 offering. Have Christ's righteousness for yourself. You don't have to add anything to it. Let's pray. God, thank you. 
It's hard to even muster up the words to say thank you for all that Jesus Christ has done for us, but we say it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for the massive gift that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And today I pray we go freed up, freed up to love, freed up to serve, freed up to get over ourselves and get into Jesus. Help us now, God, to own this text and the message therein. In Jesus' name, amen.